It's a privilege to be here this morning. I have the privilege of being the chaplain at the Kaiser Vacaville Hospital with its level two trauma center and gives me opportunity to minister to people in the ICU, people in the emergency department. I carry a pager with me a lot. Um, and get to work with the spiritual uh, care volunteers as well. This week we are going to be training a new group of volunteers. Uh, well, we'll start the process. It's a seven-week process of meeting two hours a week. If you have an interest in being a spiritual care volunteer, uh, please speak to me about it. My wife suggested that I tell you a little uh, a little bit about myself, uh, which I did not do in the earlier service. And wives know best, I've learned. Uh, so I, was, I became a believer in Vallejo when I was 16 years old. Um, I came from a broken home. My father was logging up in the Sierras. At the time, I went to live with my mother in Vallejo, moved into a situation uh, where immediately all restraints were off my life. I started as a Boy Scout in Grass Valley, moved down to Vallejo, and my new stepfather took me out, got me drunk. My new stepbrother got me two hit hits of LSD, and I was into the middle of it. So for about three years, I had a, a period of great, tremendous darkness. Much of it just trying to find out who I was. I did not... Um, know the Lord and came from a moral home background and never would have thought about doing the things I found myself doing as a young man trying to find my identity, trying to find some importance in life. Uh, some people could get that by athleticism. I wasn't built for, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be a football player. Um, some people were musicians. It, I wasn't going that way. Some people were seemed to be highly studious, and I definitely wasn't that direction. Uh, but you could become something quickly by um, smoking dope and drinking and um, just trying to be tough. And of course, I wasn't. Uh, but, you know, you're just looking to find your identity. And at the... About three years of that, and I was hitchhiking to see my girlfriend in Modesto, or in the valley, and three women picked me up uh, in Dublin on the freeway and gave me a ride. And I got in the car and said, you shouldn't pick up hitchhikers. And they said, we have protection. I thought they had a gun in the glove box. Because seriously, those were some, of, uh, although I realized, the thought went through my mind, I realized these were good ladies, but... This was kind of the dark crowd that I was running with in Vallejo. But as we traveled, they carried on a conversation. Um, I'm sure they knew what they were doing. They were talking about Jesus, and they were probably specifically talking about the Lord Jesus for the benefit of the kid in the back seat of the car. It was a grandmother, mother, and a daughter. The daughter was around 20 engaged to be married, I remember that. And I remember I felt just so un, kind of uncomfortable being in the car. They were nice, but it's like I don't belong here. And they dropped me off in Modesto, and I've never seen them since. But I began to ponder the things that they had spoken about. And a few weeks later in my bedroom in Vallejo, freaked out room, black curtains, black bedspread, black trim on the walls, brown, dark brown walls, psychedelic lights, you know, a tombstone that said mother with blood dripping off it on my black dresser. Very typical of the, what was on the inside of me. It was though God came and visited me. And I, when I became aware of his thinking about him and of his presence, I found myself very unworthy and said, God, I don't know you, but I know I should know you because if you are, why don't I know you? And I called out and said, I, I believe that Jesus died for me. 
And that was the day of impartation of life. That was the beginning of the journey for me. I went to high school the next day, began to tell my friends that um, I had met God last night. <laughs> and I began to, you know, if you die, where are you going to go? And just all this stuff started flooding through me. And I went to, there was a church, Bible Baptist Church there on Benicia Road, and I stopped in. And some girls at school had invited me, and I went to a youth revival, or a, a regular service, I can't recall, and um, professed faith in Christ, was baptized. There I met my wife, Kathy. You'll see her. She's here at the first service. And uh, so God got a hold of my life there, and I became... Eventually, after Bible college, I became the youth minister, youth director there at Bible Baptist Church. I came home to the, my home church. It was closely associated with Calvary Baptist down here on Gregory, which you, many of you may know. Um, very independent, fundamental Baptist type church. And eventually, I started a church down in the Bay Area and pastored there for 14 years. And really, a firm of knew nobody, went into town, knocked on doors, it was all knocking doors, and started a church. But after 14 years, and when our sons went to, left home and went to school, I, be, I was really questioning part of the movement of which I was a part, you know, parts of the movement of which I was a, a part myself. So I thought I would, I'm going to get out of this, um, you know, I'm tired. And I thought, I know, I'll go to seminary. There I can get lots of rest. <laughs> so I re resigned the church that I had started and sold our home. We owned a home in, down in Newark and went out to Dallas, well, lived in Mesquite and went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I went to rest, but I found myself working full-time plus going to seminary and full, carrying a full load. So that was, uh, see, I was in my 40s, like, what is up with this? Man, does it never end, you know? Uh, but I did graduate. My wife finished her bachelor's while we were there, and then I pastored a few years in Texas. Finally, you know, we wanted to get back to California. And part of it was running from issues. Uh, I came here to start a church, Went to, came to Vacaville to start Midway Community. I chose a name because of Midway Road, that region growing. Did my demographic studies. Settled in, and for another four, a little more, four or five years, began to uh, start a church. And uh, after four or five years, it just wasn't growing like the other one did, like the first church. And one day I was putting out the sign outside the Hampton Inn, and I looked around and I thought, you know, this church, this town needs another church. Like, I need a hole in my head. Why am I here? Why am I killing myself for this? Um, so, with that understanding, I believe it was from the Lord. It was just kind of a painful growing process in my life. If you think that, you know, when you turn 40 or 50, that suddenly all the issues of life will become re resolved, a lot of them that you haven't ever dealt with, you're not even aware of them well think again because God will in an ongoing manner allow you to fail and fall in life that may not sound like good news to you but it's the way he works in order that you might learn where your real life comes from and it seems that there's no other way for us to learn those lessons than to go through the experiences. Often you're looking outside and at others and difficulties and things. That is the challenge. That's where my problems are. I need to fix it. And we're all about fixing ourselves and we're going to do it. And God will just let that happen to you again and again and again. But he's with you and he'll teach you. And as our passage today will kind of unpack for us, he will bless you. So that's the story of who I am. I did, as I 
we kind of closed the church. We had about 25 people at that time, and I encouraged them to go other, to other churches. Some were moving areas uh, out of California. So I began to work for a friend of mine, a previous church member, uh, down in Hayward as office manager for truck and trailer repair. Now, I don't have a lot of grease under my fingernails. I don't turn wrenches real well, but there's one thing I could bring, and that was organization to his disorganization. A growing company, and I went to work for him for, I worked for him five years, commuting every day, back and forth. And uh, I became very weary of that. Lord, will this never end, and where am I going? Uh, so I looked into chaplaincy. I thought I could be back in ministry at least because once you leave the pastorate for five years, it's difficult to get back into the pastorate unless you're a young man. And I didn't know that if I, that I was really, that's what God wanted me to do. And I contacted the chaplain at the Vacaville Kaiser. She put me in contact with the director for the area I met him and I entered chaplaincy. And a one-year internship where you don't get paid and you just spend your time at the hospital landing cohorts and learning about yourself and about this kind of ministry. Finished it last June um, and then had no job. In September, the, the hospital uh, hired me as their chaplain, specifically trauma chaplain. And uh, it is, a, to me, a privilege to be there and to work with people that are hurting. I had some wonderful experiences, and there'll be a, perhaps one or two that I'll get to share with you today. So, I want to talk to you today about what it's like to be a chaplain as an introduction uh, to the a passage of scripture that we're going to look at, Ephesians chapter 2. The first 10 verses, many of you will have memorized or at least be quite familiar with this passage. For many of you, it'll be one of your favorite passages in the Bible. We were going through it as a small group recently, and uh, I just kind of honed in on it and thought this story is a good story. But in chaplaincy, <coughs> I, ch chaplaincy is far different than ministry. So, chaplaincy is, as I work as a chaplain, I work with the human-centered story of individual crisis. The human-centered story of individual crisis. And I've placed some things in, uh, I've written them out, so I'm going to bore you for a moment by reading to you. This is a forewarning. If you're going to nod out, now would be a perfect time. I'll try to bring you back in a moment. But I want my words to be precise here, so allow me the privilege of reading to you and I ask you to try to focus with me. Clinical chaplaincy requires a theological perspective of patients. That is, that patients desire theological answers during crisis because their lives have theological implications. Even if the institutions are not faith-based, health providers may recognize that there is a theological aspect to people, and in times of great illness, the patient's theology may be in crisis. The medical team desiring to treat the whole person includes a chaplain to care for the theological concerns of patients under duress. But this introduces a new and different understanding of what theology means. They, clinical chaplains, have a clinical understanding of theology. Traditionally, theology is the study of God developed from his revelation. If you gather that, you develop your theology from reading the Bible, the revelation of God. 
a Muslim perhaps would develop their theology from the Quran, what they receive as a revelation from God. For myself, prior to entering chaplaincy, I had formally studied theology for eight years. Studied two languages in order to accurately interpret scripture and labored to prepare theologically accurate sermons for 29 years. My seminary had certified me as a master of theology. But chaplains within non-religious institutions such as hospitals and government government-sponsored positions do not define theology as the study of God. Now, here is a, a point I want you to grasp. Chaplains are trained to study the living document of people themselves. By learning to read people as they are, the chaplain may learn what is happening within the patient. The patient is the text. The t patient becomes the revelation of himself or herself. To a patient in crisis, what is true to the patient is the theology of the patient. This theology is not what the patient ought to believe, but rather what the patient actually believes, though often the patient is not even aware of what they believe. So I must be careful to listen to the patient to learn what she speaks without reading into the patient my preconceived thoughts. We enter the patient's room not to read to them, but to read them. See that the difference between one of our ministers would come to see you in the hospital and he might even have a Bible inside, although I carry one too. But, but your pastor would, might visit you or your friend come to minister to you in the hospital and they might even bring a psalm to read to you. They might want to encourage you with prayer. The faith that you share, they come to read to you. As a chaplain, I come into the room to read you. Sounds spooky almost, doesn't it? But people need someone to talk to about what's going on in their lives. I believe in the process. I, I, I believe, as I understand the concept of finding out what's really going on in a person, I think it's a good thing. We ought to do that more. We ought to learn to listen to people. When someone is freaking out, what's going on? Not just to be angry with them, like, can't you get it together? When someone is within a pattern in their life that has a downward spiral, rather than just condemning them, what is happening? Someone with a real ear to, to, to listen and to have perhaps the wisdom to dis discern what may be going on. So I encourage you to listen to each other. You'd be, it's a wonderful thing because it's really helped, my wife's not here so I can talk about her, it's really helped me to reflect back upon what's happening in my wife's life. And now and then I look in the mirror and it helps me think about who I am. Why do I do the things? Why am I anxious? And then I have to look back, what do I really believe? What's really happening in me? Why am I angry. It's all about me, not the situation around me. It's not about her. It's not about him. It's me. And you begin to stop and think about who you are and what you're doing, why you're doing it. It's a great process. So you see me coming to see what pages they might turn from their own lives so that together we can see a story unfolding of their hopes, confusions, disillusions about what they believe. Together we discover their construction of that which is transcendent and brings purpose and meaning 
in the midst of their crisis. We seek to understand the individual story. So we find here, you see the limitations about what is happening as a chaplain, but you find some very good things as a caring presence. We do need to listen and reflect. For instance, I often do not identify myself as a believer to a patient, even if he is a believer. Why would I not tell them that I'm a Christian? Because they may think that they need to act or think a certain way around a preacher. Oh, you're a preacher. Oh, well, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, God's taking care of me. Everything's going to work out fine. I'm trusting Jesus. They may not feel free to talk about what is really going on in their lives because they're talking to a preacher. Now, there are occasions that I'm looking for my New Testament, but uh, there are I carry a New Testament with me, and there are opportunities that I'll share some in a bit in which... I'm unashamedly a Christian there. But I had to identify this difference in order for me to continue as a chaplain. I had to understand that I have my faith, but I'm not going into the patient's room to share my faith. I'm going into the patient's room to discern what the patient's faith is. What do they really believe? What are they trusting in? and see if we can bring them hope in their crisis from what they believe. Now, again, we'll find some illustrations where I do have the opportunity to minister as a believer. I want to give you an illustration of chaplaincy. This is a story by a William Alberts, a PhD, that was promoted recently among chaplains. He told the story of being at the hospital where he works. And as he came in, there was a black man uh, there in the emergency department sitting and seemed to be frustrated and ill, very ill. And he said hello to him and uh, said, how are you doing? And he said, I am about ready to go shovel, to be shoveling coal. And what he meant by that, of course, was uh, I'm going to go to hell and I know what's happening to me, I'm dying. Probably as men will do, tried to use a little humor. But the chaplain comments on this and uh, he says this about this particular patient as he read the patient. This man possessed a theology of self-hatred born of oppressed and oppressive human relationships. A theology in which all persons, black and white alike, are born in sin and will be shoveling coal unless they renounce their sinful nature and accept Jesus Christ as the only Son of God and their Lord and Savior, who is portrayed as having died on the cross for their sins, end quote. So this is a chaplain whom I might be expected to respect as a, as a part of a medical team. And when he sees a patient, he, sees, he reads that his whole problem is what he believes and that belief system that men are sinners and that their only way of salvation is Jesus Christ is bringing that man down. It is oppressing him. Well, I want to say three things about this before I read our text. First of all, the theology of the individual, if I come into your room and I speak with you and want to be a, a blessing to you, you must realize that theology of the individual is all moral. That is, there's no morality involved in that room. You may confess things that you feel are bad, but I, I don't necessarily agree that they're bad. You may have buried your mother in the backyard. But I'm there to listen to your story and to come alongside you and probably find out how bad she treated you and now how you've been carrying this guilt for 15 years since you buried her. 
you, you've been carrying this load of guilt, and now I'm here to help you release the burden of guilt. <laughs> See, there's no moral standard by which to judge anyone. It's just simply what emotions are they facing? What's the crisis in their life? I, it's not unusual. So I went to one man's room. He, was, he asked to see the chaplain. I came in, and, I'm, and he's been in an accident, and he's moaning. He's in his 30s or so, and he's moaning, and he's hurting, and he's emotional. And as I begin to talk to him, he says, I love him so much. I miss him so much. Then he, my husband, and I'm there to help him unpack the emotions that he has over his breakup with his lover. So there's no morality there. You see what, what I'm trying to say, whether financial morality, there's just no more, except for paying the hospital. <coughs> Another thing about this type of theology, which I value, I think that it, it, it has its purpose, is the, it's theology of the individual has no knowable future. The idea that you know where you're going when you die has no value to clinical chaplains because you can't know that. No one knows anything beyond this life. Now, you may believe that, and if it brings you comfort, that's good. We encourage it. Trust in Jesus to save you, because that's where you find meaning and purpose. But we don't really know that that's true. You see, there's no knowable future beyond this world. And thirdly, thirdly, it's a theology of the individual which has no revealed God. There's no revelation. They're the revelation. There is no outside revelation of God except for a general consensus that God must be loving and caring if there is a God. Just kind of a Buddhist type, Hindu type concept of goodness. But let's look in Ephesians chapter 2 now, and I want to show you a different kind of story. We have first a theology, a human-centered story of individual tragedy which, with which I work every day. And then you have the divine-centered story of deliverance. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to read them and then comment on them. And you were dead in the, in the trespasses, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are being saved and raised us up and seated him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Join me in praying, shall you? 
Father, we've looked for a moment at the idea of theology being the study of man. Now bless as we spend time looking at your revelation. And be pleased, Father, to reveal yourself to us. Let us know your story. That we would finish that good work in us and bring us cause to praise you, to adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. We looked at the human-centered story of individual tragedy, which is clinical chaplaincy. Again, it has its good points, but let's look here at the divine-centered story of your deliverance. This was our story in verses 1 through 3. It tells us dead, trespasses, and sins. We're using a vocabulary here, hello, that is not acceptable outside the walls of this building. This room, though you know it not, is flooded with light. Because we have light that lightens men's souls. We have the truth that shined into our hearts to bring us the knowledge of the Son of God. But outside the walls of this church and inside the walls of other buildings, that light is not often welcome. And when you speak these words, you would find yourself very unwelcome. I know now, I walk those halls. Not to individuals. There are a lot of individuals who believe this within institutions. But the institution itself cannot embrace it. A position. It tells us that we were following the prince of the air. Notice the word walked. You walked in a, in a pattern, a path. The, even the word trespass has the idea of stepping over. So it was a lifestyle that just naturally flowed from who we were, who we are. And we had a master who promised us freedom and liberty to do, and he'll always encourage us in this. You don't deserve this. You deserve more. You deserve other things. You're not being treated right. And we were following that and believing that. And it's always been his temptation to tell us that we're not getting what we ought to in life. It's very temporal. That was our master. And still is the master of the world. He uses the same efforts to enslave today. When it was simply our story, we were his slaves, the slaves of sin, passion, and desires. Our condition was so repulsive to God that we were the children of wrath. That is, a, um, again, another phrase that you just could not, con I couldn't use this uh, bringing a message among chaplains. What? God could be wrathful, could be angry with me for who I am, that there's an angry God, that there's something wrong with me. This is just totally unacceptable. And if you're here and you're listening to these few brief words in which I read the scriptures about this and you're already turning me off and you're saying, I don't want to hear about an angry God or wrath or sin. I implore you to listen to the rest of the story before you reject what's offered to you. So give me a hearing. 
Because the, it's a story of our unworthiness. Not a story of our goodness and our abilities and our hopes and our dreams, but of our unworthiness. That's where Christ found us, unworthy, dead, darkened mind, disillusioned, hurting, hurtful, despondent. Then let's treat this like a story, these 10 verses, a story in three chapters. We've looked at the story of the patient. Now let's look at God's story of deliverance in three chapters. The first one, the story of our unworthiness. We flip quickly through that because it's very disgusting and we really don't want to think of ourselves that way. But we come now to chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and we see the story of our union. First it was our unworthiness and now our union, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in tr our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Read through that quickly, but let me draw your attention to three verbs. Made alive together, raised together, sat together. The Greek words are all, let me read them backward to you. Here's the Greek word, I'm going to translate it backward. He made alive together. Just to help you say that with me. He made alive together. That is all in one word. Sune zoe poison. I knew that would really impress you. He made alive together. And then you have suneagirin. He raised together. Then you have sunekathison. He sat together. All three of these are what our salvation is all about. And let me describe it for you this way. We were lost in a sea of despondency, sin and transgression. We dwelt in death. We were children of wrath. We were drowning. We had no hope. We had not God in the world. We were all within our own story, struggling with others, struggling with ourselves, struggling with addiction, struggling with popularity, struggling to get financially secure, struggling, struggling. And one dove into the water with us. He drove into the water through the womb of a virgin. He became one with us, embraced our nature and swam with us in the sea of sin around humanity, and then even embraced our death. Died as one of us. Was buried, completing the whole process which we had begun. And then there came a shaking, and he rose from the dead. But the interesting thing is while he was in the water with us and after he had gone to the grave for us, he embraces us. He finds us as we are and he takes us unto himself. And when God raises Jesus our Lord from the dead and makes him alive, we are with him. And he makes us alive. Made, he made alive together. So that when he came out from the dead, I came out from the dead. 
Then he is raised up from the lowest parts of the earth, and he ascends up into the heavens, up, up into the presence of God. I, with all of my struggles and all of my fears and all of my anxieties and all, all of my misfortunes, and he takes me with him up into the heavenlies. Then he gets, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there I am in his lap, looking with him upon the Father, and the Father looking upon me and finding no fault finding no accusation. I'm totally comfortable there in the presence of God. I have life. Life. Life is finally mine because He invaded my troubled story, embraced my story as His own, and let me participate in His story of resurrection, ascension, and seating. It speaks of security. No more to, when you're seated, there's no more to be done. I'm here. So, for us, this is the basis of all that we are. Like, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. We have a new story. And it's not just my story in isolation, without a future, and without any moral judgments. Instead, it's his story full of moral judgment, full of righteousness, full of goodness, full of power. Instead of powerless. Depending upon human ability and my ability to lift myself up from my condition and my issues in life and the struggles against society and the struggles against the issues around me which I face and overwhelm our cultures. Powerless mankind is against its enemy. But we have a power now that because it's his power and he's wrapped us into his arms. And we're raised up in power to overcome the real issues of our life. Not the surface issues which we have the power to fix. This now, our social and economic standings, the basis of all we are, our real being, our relationships with each other, with our wife, our husband. Paul goes on to talk about this. Because of this, our story is union now with him. This affects, influences, transforms the relationships we have with each other. No longer individual stories, but everything that happens in your story is a part of my story. Because your story is a part of his story. My story now is a part of his story. You can't treat me independently of how you treat the Savior. I can't treat you independently of the Savior who belongs to you. This affects my wife and how I treat my wife. We both are seated together in heavenly places. We have everlasting life. How can I wrong her? She cannot treat me, shouldn't. <laughs> I keep telling her this. She just doesn't get it. But. Paul goes on to talk about the relationships we have with each other in the church here in Ephesians are all in light of it being part of the story embraced in Christ. The being made alive together, the being raised together, the being seated together, all that truth affects everything that we do in life, all of our relationships. Our employers, 
with the government. It's all affected because this is true. Not just the story that's true for the individual. This is the universal true story of the creator. So, in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about our old enemy. Now not as our master, like he was in the first verse, but now he sees him as our adversary and that we struggle against him in the area of concepts and ideas. His arsenal with which he attacks us is that of concepts, ideas. It was in the Garden of Eden. It continues to be today. And so Paul says, put on, be belted with truth. If you're going to struggle against him, you have to arm yourself with truth about your story, who you are. Not how strong you are. Not how you deserve this and you're going to get that. But instead, who you are, it affects everything. You, you can't just walk out on those babies. You can't walk out on that marriage. I know you're not getting what you think you deserve, but you can't, you can't do that because you're united with Christ and the victory is in Him. That, he's not going to offer us self-help. Excuse me, I'm falling. He's not going to offer us self-help. He's going to let us do it if we choose to. And have later the, oh God, why didn't I learn who I was? I'm diverting. Let's go first. We've seen the story of our unworthiness. We turn the chapter and it's the story of our union with him. And then thirdly, we see it's the story of our maturity. In verses 7 through 10, he says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And this I want to key in. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to see the book end here. He says, now the result of all of this is that we are his workmanship into the ages to come for good works, that we should walk in them. In verse 1, you remember, it says we walked according to the course of this world. Now, because of being involved in God's story, we walk in good works in Christ Jesus. The transformation from our story in which we were walking in death to Christ's story in which we're walking in life is what he did in unionizing us with him. Not because we have learned how to handle life, not because we have gotten tools to manage ourselves and those around us, but instead we have become mature in understanding our relationship with Christ. Everything, everything, everything that matters comes through Christ. You may have heard this saying, Salvation was God's gift to you. What you make of yourself after you are saved is your gift to God. How many have ever heard that? Now, now wait a minute. I just told you all, and you told me then you haven't heard it. But I want to read it again and see if it makes sense to you. Salvation was God's gift to you. What you make of yourself after you are saved is your gift to God. How many have heard that before? <laughs> I don't think Paul would agree with that. I don't think the text would agree with that. I don't think God ever depended upon you and me 
to make something of our lives. God didn't come to a 16-year-old boy and save him in a dark room and say, now go show me what you got. Go show me how you can get it together. Show me how you can handle it. Put things back the way they should be. I'd be like Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall, had a great fall, and Wade couldn't put him back together again. I can't put anything back together. And God never came to you expecting and depending upon you to put your life back together. He didn't expect you to take a dead person and make that person alive. He didn't expect you to take one who was walking in sins and transgressions and transform yourself. No. He united you in his son and it was the power of God that goes beyond human ability. This is the story of this is the story of stories. This is what existence is all about. That God united us. We were made alive together. We were raised together. We were seated in the heavenlies together. All is God's gift. All from God's power. And as we mature, we begin to understand more and more it never was about me. When I was young, I was going to show God I'd be a great preacher. And part of my story is God letting me blow it again and again and again. And the knotted stomach and the aching back of trying and failing, the issues that come up by having control of my life, the tension in the home, my poor kids having to put up with a Baptist preacher, all of those things. But God continually lets me go through it. When I pray, oh God, deliver me from this sin. God, I won't do that again. Next month. Tomorrow. I'm struggling with it over. I say, God, please take away my sins. Take away the things that bind me. Please deliver me. Don't you love me? Now I can come to the point where I can say, I thank you, God, that you didn't deliver me. You just let me keep falling and falling and falling and tripping up because my faith was in me. This is maturity in the Christian life that we live out through good works, but not good works that from us. Because of our union with Christ Jesus. This is our destiny through the ages. Not just playing harps and floating on billowy clouds in heaven. But created in Christ Jesus, we participate now and we will participate into the eternity. Doing good. Doing good. It's his intention. And it's his gift. And it's his guarantee. Because we're in Christ. I appreciate both stories. I'm amazed sometimes at just coming into the room and me listening to someone, how much comfort and consolation that I can bring to a patient as they tell me their story. Not that I'm trying to fix it. I can't, I don't, I could, but I don't offer necessarily counsel, but just be someone who cares enough to listen. But I thank God for the story, the old, old story, in which he embraced me, made me alive together, raised me up together, seated me together. This is the basis of my existence. I don't often get the opportunity to speak about Jesus in the hospital, but some days patients will open the door for me. In one particular case, a woman is in ICU with her husband. The husband was apparently going to die soon. And I'd visited in the room and 
met the wife and the husband while he could still speak. And I learned that they were Christians, very devout Christians, met their pastor, and just had a little relationship with them. A few days later, I get a telephone call while I'm in the office that the patient in this room would like you to come. So I said, okay, I'll be there. And I leave my office, go down to the uh, ICU. And as I approach the patient's room, I don't know what's going on, but I find out, I observe that this patient is in full code. That is, the entire medical team of probably a dozen or 14 people are gathered around and in the room at the doorway, and I see them doing heart pressures and all the machinery there, and the person had coded, that is, their heart had stopped, and they were working to bring him back to life. And as I approached, one of the medical team said, the chaplain's here, and the wife said, I want him to pray. Well, I felt that the man was going to be passing. We had talked about it before. So as I walked over to into the door, and all, all the medical team part away, they stand back like, uh-oh, what's he going to do? I think what they were expecting is for me to say, oh, have, you know, dear God, bring us peace and, and uh, help us and help the medical team, and et cetera, the kind of things you would expect. But I knew her. And they had both spoken to me about their faith in Jesus Christ and that that's why they knew everything was going to be okay. So I just came up, took him by the hand. He was not conscious, but she was beside, took her by the hand, and I just began to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this couple knows you as their Savior. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for their sins and rose from the dead, and now they get to prove the reality of that which... He is going to experience that for which he has hoped since you gave him everlasting life in your son. You know, bless, I prayed for her and all, but I was able to boldly proclaim the truth we believe in prayer to the Father. It was a wonderful moment. I, I was kind of stunned. You know, I hadn't expected to even pray. And then I stop and I open my eyes and I look around and all the medical staff are going, chins are dropped because God's story for just a moment permeated the hospital walls of individual stories. The permission came from the patient through their story. God's story was expressed. And I am so thankful for that. You know this song I love to tell the story some of you are old enough, you may remember it. Of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. You know the chorus? Would you sing it with me? I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have looked today at what our culture sees as the center of life, the human-centered story. They don't see beyond it just what happens here. And it's a tragic story. But you have embraced us in your story, Father. Story of our unworthiness story of our union with you as you made us alive together raised us together sat us together in heavenly places it's a story of our maturity as we're now in that upward path father as you're teaching us it's all about you and your power 
your goodness and your love, would you make us stronger today as we understand that you are our life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.